the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I am based in Vancouver, British Columbia at Regent College. Co-hosts for the podcast are Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And we're so glad you're listening in. I'd like to introduce the team that helps make this possible behind the scenes. So first of all, Mim Ward helps with creative design, and I'll let the others introduce themselves. I'm James Steinbach, web development. Rebecca Turkey, media and marketing. I'm Ed Hatke, and I produce the show. Thanks also to those of you who donate to OnScript. We really appreciate uh, your support of the show. And if you'd like to consider that, go over to onscript.study forward slash donate and you can find out more. And if you aren't in a position where that's something you can do right now, totally understand. Uh, But maybe you'd like to help us out in another way, which is to give us a rating on iTunes, which helps the, the algorithm the algorithm of searchability to help people find us and learn about what we're doing. So go to iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast and give a rating and we'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome on Scripters. Today, our guests are Mark and Luke Glanville. Yes, they're brothers, and they happen to play jazz together as well, but more on that later. Mark is a colleague of mine at Regent College. He's an Old Testament scholar and associate professor of pastoral theology at Regent. He's the author of Adopting the Stranger as Kindred in Deuteronomy, published by SBL 2018, and Exodus, Society Reshaped as Family, which is forthcoming this year. Is that out, Mark? Coming up in a few months. Okay. So look for that next year. And he's co-authored Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics with Luke Glanville, his brother, who's here with us, and that's published by IVP Academic. Luke is an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at Australian National University. He has a book forthcoming next year called Sharing Responsibility, the History and Future of Protection from Atrocities, and of course, they've co-authored Refuge Reimagine. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. So this is the first sibling duo we've had on the podcast. All right. (laughs) And uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your upbringing and, uh, you know, your sibling dynamics and how that plays out in this book. How has it led to the creation of this book? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, Luke and I are brothers. We grew up in Australia. Aaron, uh, I'm, I'm married to Aaron, who's a Canadian, and that took me across to the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but we uh, we used to play jazz together, and, and now we write together, which is a whole lot of fun. And we grew up uh, in, in a family where we had parents, we think, as we try and read our story, who were very compassionate people. And we think of, we've actually dedicated the book to our mother who died three years ago. She was just a deeply compassionate person who uh, people kind of looked to and came to for care and modeled that for us. And so we've dedicated this model, this book to her, just with the hope that um, if some of that tenderness uh, comes through, and which is really the tenderness of Jesus, uh, we'll be really pleased, we'll be thrilled. 
So as our kind of our, our careers have crossed over for a second time, we found that we were both working in and thinking about and researching on forced displacement, just trying to seek for an ethic of, of tenderness that we find in Scripture and in Jesus. And so we just, you know, to be honest, I was writing in biblical studies, and people would say to me, but Mark, that just doesn't make sense politically. That doesn't make sense practically. And Luke would make kind of a, a practical political argument, and then Someone who is a Christian might say, but Luke, does that really make sense of Scripture? I mean, what about the Canaanites, for example? And we realized that we were getting sort of different pushback, uh, which is sort of the other side of the coin to our discipline. So we thought, what if we combine our disciplines and write something that really sort of uh, takes the whole discourse um, together and combine forces sort of thing and write something that can be a stake in the ground? Yeah, I, you know, I was describing your book to someone recently, and I said, it's really rare to have a book where... Uh, it it makes a strong kind of biblically grounded case for a social issue. Um, but then you're not left at the end of it feeling like you've got sort of vague outlines of how this looks in practice on the ground. And you guys manage to do that both at the sort of interpersonal level, the church level, but also the the national and geopolitical level, which I really appreciate about about the book. And, and that is a testimony to the benefit of combining your your two disciplines. So... Well done on that front. Um, so what is it, going to your title, Refuge Reimagined, what is it that needs to be reimagined about the global refugee crisis, and what does kinship have to do with it? What needs to be reimagined? So Pope Francis gave this powerful speech maybe uh, six or seven years ago on, on refugees and what he termed the globalization of indifference. Hmm. And he was just kind of pointing out that, that no one in the world seems to feel responsible for this um, growing issue of global uh, forced displacement, displacement of vulnerable people. He says we've, we've lost a sense of responsibility for our brothers and sisters and we've just got used to their suffering. Hmm. Um, so right now, the, the latest figures coming out of um, the UN's refugee agency, UNHCR, is that 80 million people around the world are currently forcibly displaced by persecution, conflict, war, man-made disasters, natural disasters. More than 15 million of those have been displaced for more than five years. Around or a little less than half of that 80 million are children. It's just horrific. Mm. And yet over the last decade or so, so many wealthy Western states have responded. As these numbers have kept going up, their response has been to reduce their refugee settlement intakes, mm. to put up borders to stop people seeking asylum, to detain those who manage to cross their borders in search of asylum, spending billions of dollars deterring people from getting to their borders and containing them in developing parts of the world. Um, and while we have countries like our own, Australia and Canada and also the United States, and about 20 or 30 others do resettle um, numbers of refugees, collectively they resettle only around 100,000 per year of the 80 million and the UN's refugee agency each year identifies at the beginning of the year somewhere between one and two million that they say are in urgent need of resettlement mm. and each year the international community doesn't even hit 10 percent of that. And when you say resettle you mean accept into their country and settle them there so not resettling back right so um, so 100,000 collectively among the wealthy nations and then you've got the remaining 79 million uh, nine hundred thousand that are being absorbed by the poorest of countries 
and and like uh, at least half. I haven't got the figures right in front of me, but, but at least half of these are internally displaced, meaning they're displaced from their homes, their communities, but they're within their countries of origin. And right. uh, another twenty, thirty, forty million uh, managed to um, leave their countries of origin, and and most are found. Eighty-five percent of those who are called refugees by UNHCR are found in developing regions of the world near their home countries. Um, some uh, wanting to return home as soon as possible, so therefore yeah. wanting to stay nearby their home countries, but many wanting to find new homes and needing to find new homes for reasons of security, et cetera, and unable to do so. Hmm. And why have you chosen in this book to focus on kinship specifically? You know, kinship is a biblical trajectory, and it's a biblical trajectory perhaps that's underexplored because in many Western nations we tend to be more individualistically oriented societies, whereas in ancient times and in many communities today, but certainly in Old Testament and New Testament times, these communities were communal societies. And so much then of the biblical story and of the ethics that we encounter in Scripture, the, the morality we encounter in Scripture, happens on this domain of kinship. And as we show in our book, in the biblical story, there's this ethical movement, this ethical trajectory of God, by God's grace, enfolding the weakest as kin, calling God's people, shaping Old Testament Israel, shaping the church to enfold the weakest among them as kin. In other words, becoming a makeshift family together. People who are vulnerable in ancient times needed a clan. People who are vulnerable needed a, a place for protection and belonging and celebration and life and just mere sustenance. And so we show in our book how throughout the biblical story, God is calling God's people to enfold the most vulnerable, especially the displaced as kin. And the other reason we really zero in on this motif, this trajectory of kinship, is that Luke and I just found as we uh, kind of encounter the world that kinship opens up our imaginations to something fresh, to something deeper, to something more mutual, and to something more joyful than just should we welcome refugees or should we let immigrants in? No, that's that's not the way the Bible presents the issue. The Bible presents the issue at the level of of our deepest commitments, of who we're family with, of who we're in solidarity with, of who we uh, extend our hearts to and share life with. And so we find that kinship is a very evocative, uh, an, an evocative phrase that opens wide our imagination and, and gets us thinking creatively. Hmm. So you, you discuss a, a, a study by the Pew Research Center from 2018 that says that 51% of Americans say that the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees into the country. And uh, disturbingly, that 25% of white evangelical Protestants, um, I don't know, I guess that was American Protestants, think that it is uh, a responsibility of the U.S. Why do you think that is? Well, let me have a shot at that. I think it's probably a complex answer. The, the answer is a mosaic. But certainly theologically, one has to ask, how do we understand the biblical story and how do we understand the gospel? And sometimes I think that we can, in, in the West, truncate the gospel, make the gospel narrower than it really is in Scripture. Sometimes we can narrow the biblical story to having an exclusive concern to 
individual pe people being saved through a relationship with Jesus so that they can escape this world and get to heaven. And there's a few dimensions there that need to be broadened and deepened. And the first is that, that our future isn't in heaven, even though there's a, we go and be with Christ when we die. The, God's ultimate purpose for God's world is to renew the world. In other words, the story of salvation history is about this world. God, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created this world with care and delight. God created a good world, and God is about the healing of the creation, the restoration of the creation. That's why in the New Testament, uh, the eschatological uh, phrase when Paul looks toward the future, uh, toward restoration, the, the Christian hope, the repeated refrain that Paul uses perhaps 50 times is when he comes, when he comes, when Christ comes. In other words, it's not that we're going up, it's that Christ is coming here to renew all things. And when we understand that, that, that God is in the business not of junking this world, God doesn't junk this world because God hasn't made junk. God's made a wonderful world. Uh, and he's given image bearers uh, the responsibility to, to steward this good creation. And the church, the responsibility to live as a sign, as an instrument, as a foretaste to God's restorative reign in Christ. In other words, that we live as a church as an advertisement to the good things that, that the Father has accomplished and secured for the world in Jesus' death and resurrection, which is nothing less than the healing, the deep healing, the renewal of all things. And so then, uh, the mission of the church is, is certainly includes uh, verbal proclamation of, of the glory of Jesus and the reality of Jesus. But as we speak of Jesus, we speak of Jesus as the healer of all things, all things reconciled, even the creation itself. And so I wonder if then you know, in our Christian life, it's, it's a problem of how we understand the biblical story and even how we understand the gospel. That when, we, when, when Mark, for example, says in Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel, he, and then he's, he tells the gospel story. This is a story that's deeply embedded in the creation. Jesus is calming storms, healing lepers. And then raises from the dead, the Father raises Jesus from the dead as the first fruits of the creation. Maybe as we capture the depth and the breadth of the biblical story as creation-wide, we as a church will start to take very, very seriously the ways in which the Father in Christ is healing the world. And this includes giving people a home, because place matters, because the world matters, and because people matter. Yeah, um, Mark, if I could just stay with you for a moment here, um, because... As we look at the biblical story, I can I can imagine people nodding their head when it comes to sort of the grand trajectory, creation to new creation. But then we have the stuff in the middle to deal with um, regarding Old Testament law and so on. Um, and in, in your book, you, you guys mentioned a study by James Hoffmeyer uh, that I want to highlight uh, because many of our listeners are aware of his name in biblical studies. And he wrote a book on... Uh, I can't remember the title, but it has something to do with like the immigration crisis, his, which are his words. Yeah. And, and it suggests that ancient Israel was called to care for sojourners who entered the land legally. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could sketch the nature and influence of his study um, by Hoffmeyer, because that's, you know, he's a pretty big name in biblical studies. Um, and, and that, 
and some of the, the flaws that you've identified in that particular study. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, so to be sure, Hofmeier argues that, that the stranger in the Old Testament, and that's where he kind of stays in his study for the most part, is someone who received legal standing. Uh, it seems to me clear that this isn't really an importation from the contemporary North American situation of documented and undocumented immigrants. But anyway, this is how he defines a stranger. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I just want to say that he anchors the book. He does sort of embed the book, not just in the Old Testament times, but in, as, as a conversation with immigration reform today or the lack of immigration reform today. And it, it troubles me, to be honest, if I can say right up the front, that, that there is, there's little acknowledgement that these are real people who are fleeing gang violence, who are fleeing domestic violence. And this is very, very significant. It has a real personal dimension. I mean, I would like to engage, speak about Hofmeier's arguments, but, but Luke, you have, uh, as an international relations scholar, just been aware of how influential the book has been. So there's, there's a, a group called Capital Ministries that runs Bible studies, um, including in Washington, D.C. It's got a I think it's a Tuesday morning Bible study group for the Senate, a Tuesday morning group for Congress. Uh, and on Wednesday mornings, there's the White House Cabinet Bible study meets. And um, in 2016, and then again in 2019, they run a, they run a study which you can um, read the nature of the study and the content of the study online. Um, and it was on a topic, something to do with what does the Bible say about our illegal immigration problem? I think that's, that's the way they articulate the issue. And Hofmeier's argument that Old Testament Israel is called to welcome only the legal immigrant and not the illegal immigrant is cited approvingly in the study. Um, and members of this study include Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Rick Perry, Ben Carson, Betsy DeVos, all kinds of uh, incredibly influential people. Um, in recent years, it's also included Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Um, and there's been clear instances um, over the last four years in which some of the ideas in this Bible study and other capital ministry Bible studies and memos on the wall, the Bible on the wall was a memo that capital ministries wrote um, for the cabinet, the White House cabinet Bible study. There's instances in which the ideas here have just turned up in speeches by Trump officials, such as Jeff Sessions, to justify US immigration policy. So it's had enormous influence. It's significant how Christian scholarships becomes comes into the public square. I mean, I've written an academic monograph on the stranger in Deuteronomy, and I mean, you only have to read through Deuteronomy to see that this stranger who occurs so frequently in this very important biblical book is simply a vulnerable outsider, someone who is seeking a home uh, and is vulnerable and without means, needs a place to belong, needs subsistence, needs protection. Uh, there's nothing at all about seeking legal protection. This is an importation into the text that other scholars have not made rightly. And, and the point is, in Deuteronomy and beyond, the, the, text, the biblical text speaks of God's people's responsibility, Israel's responsibility to welcome the stranger, to protect the stranger, to provide them with subsistence, and to enfold them as kin. The Bible doesn't speak of the, Austra the, the, the stranger's responsibility to obtain legal protection or that they would be somehow accursed if they didn't. And that is so far from the biblical mindset because the stranger is the one who is vulnerable. The stranger is the one who is weak. And in Deuteronomy and indeed all of Scripture, the, the biblical ethics always tilts toward vulnerability. Biblical ethics tilts 
towards bringing the weakest into the center of the community. Not saying to the weakest, uh, you know, we'd love to bring into the center of the community, but first you have to do X, Y, Z. No, that's not the way the Bible speaks. The Bible commands God's people by, by, by way of divine command to enfold the vulnerable stranger. And so, you know, to say that the stranger is someone who has gone through some legal proceeding, some presumably similar to kind of um, applying for uh, immigration to the U.S. or something like that as an importation on the text that just doesn't ring true. Hofmeyer's book is missing the human face on immigration. It's missing the fact that you, it is very difficult for people to obtain legal procedures the number of years that can take, the utter impossibility for many people to make a valid application for legal standing. And he misses the United States' complicity in poverty in Latin America and in violence in, in Latin America. He misses he, the troubling treatment of undocumented immigrants, as we've seen in recent years in the Trump era, the, even uh, the, the very troubling treatment of children in detention. I, I wonder, is that rooted, uh, that idea of legal standing is that rooted in the distinction made sometimes between a foreigner and a stranger is that is that where that kind of thinking comes from that nohri and ger in deuteronomy i don't know if, if that's where people would base that idea i don't know matt i mean i think that the phrase legal standing it just sounds so modern to me i mean luke luke could quickly speak to us about the development of the concept of statehood uh, in the last 500 years, and especially even the last 80 years. Uh, the Nokri, it seems to me, is a foreigner who has means to subsist on their own. They ha have some kind of independent standing in the community, even if they have some vulnerability by virtue of being an ethnic, whatever that means, outsider. Uh, but the stranger, or the ger, as we say in Hebrew, is quite a different figure, uh, more like a refugee or an undocumented immigrant, someone uh, who needs support, and who who needs uh, protection and subsistence? How, how do you how do you go then from let's say you look at the Old Testament and, and think okay, it, it seems like Israel needed to enfold the stranger into their community, but how do you make the transfer then from that world to yes, we need to do that in our modern states when those states weren't even in view to some extent in in the Bible? How do you how do you make those kind of ethical transfers from the past to the the present. Well, Israel was given the law as a concrete model of God's vision for community. Um, and God's laws aren't just an arbitrary set of rules for one nation. The, the law reflects the will and wisdom of God, the God of every place, the God of every nation. Um, we draw on Chris's, Chris Wright's work in the book where um, Chris talks about how the law including its provisions for the treatment of displaced strangers, was given to Israel to enable Israel to live as a model and as a light to the nations. And so the accounts of the law can be read as a paradigm for all nations. And God repeatedly in the Old Testament holds not just Israel, but other nations to account for their injustices, condemning them for their injustices in the opening chapter of Amos, for example. And the point um, that we make isn't that Israel's legal and institutional structures and other um, cultural um, practices of welcoming the stranger should be precisely replicated mm -hmm. by all nations today. Rather, 
the arrangements that we find in the Old Testament represent the specific and, and historically um, contextualised and concrete application of God's vision for community in this particular cultural and historical context. And so our, our task today, the task of nations, I think, is to consider this model carefully and to strive again to work out this vision of community in, the, in our own um, cultural and historical context. We talk in the book, and maybe we can um, talk, talk about this a bit further later, but we talk that the, we suggest that the task of understanding and applying a biblical ethic um, of kinship towards strangers is a bit like the task of a jazz musician, mm. which is that we, we, we try to hear and understand and internalise the tradition, the tradition of jazz music, and then we try to perform it anew, remain, remaining true to the tradition, but um, performing it in new ways creatively again and again in ever-evolving contexts and shifting moments. Yeah, I like that jazz metaphor, and obviously you guys play jazz together. So, Luke, you're a drummer, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and Mark, uh, you're pianist. They are instruments. Yeah, we used to practice together. Uh, yeah, we used to set up, set up in our church hall and, and practice with one another, and Luke would get frustrated that I wasn't as good at the time as he was. <laughs> Mark used to teach me piano, so I took up the drums. Oh, nice. Um, so, so, so with so the idea is you internalize the in in a sense the heart of biblical law, and then as we try to perform this in our modern context, then you, there's just still a way of being faithful to that the heart of that law um, in our world today. So to kind of extend the metaphor, getting to know the sounds and the rhythms and the harmonies. Um, and, and utilising them and, and trying to remain true to them. Both, both Mark and I uh, studied jazz in Sydney under a guy named Mike Nock, and he would often kind of yell out uh, mid-performance uh, to a musician or a band, mm-hmm. things along the line of, where are your roots? Just kind of saying, I don't care what you're playing, it's not jazz, because it's, uh, it's not rooted in the tradition. Okay. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a useful way of thinking about how to understand yeah. and, and interpret and apply a biblical ethic of kinship for strangers jazz is so creative and and i think to respond to to live out of the tradition in terms of forced displacement it takes tremendous creativity on behalf of churches on behalf of nations and the global community yeah so um we'll we'll touch on that a little a little bit because i want to come back to that idea of what this looks like in practice um but i I just want to pose a couple counter arguments or, or concerns um one of them, of course, is a real challenge to a biblical ethic of kinship of just enfolding the outsider is the, are the commands in Deuteronomy to destroy the outsider, uh, or at least those who are currently in the land of Canaan. So, so how do you wrestle through the presence of such a high ethos of care for the stranger in the same book where you have the commands to utterly destroy and show no mercy to the Canaanites who are in the land that Israel's about to, to enter. Thanks, Matt. I mean, you and I both know this could be an hour podcast on its own. We wouldn't barely scratch the surface. Um, we've both studied this material. Uh, I mean, I think that it's the very surface tension that you've named that's a clue that something's deeper going on. That is to say, there's this relentless call to enfold a stranger as kin, and these, at least at the surface level, barbaric texts 
to destroy the Canaanites, who is Israel's other. And so at a surface level, uh, th there's an utter antithesis, and one could almost, if one stopped there, take the, the brilliant uh, tradition of the Old Testament and throw it up in the air as nonsense. However, uh, we need to read these texts very, very carefully and theologically and below the surface because uh, this uh, is theological material about Israel's life with God. One clue is that there is this tension between welcoming and destroying the Canaanites. Another clue, and I think the determinative clue exegetically, is that the Canaanite destruction texts are actually all about Israel. In fact, the Old Testament is all about Israel. The story of the Old Testament history is a story of the calling of God's people, Israel, and the giving of the law and the demise of this people precisely because of their breaking of the covenant. Because Israel was unfaithful to the covenant, Israel was exiled uh, out of the land. It's the narrative arc of the Old Testament story is about Israel. And so one might say, what, what is this odd theme of the Canaanites that's interjected here in Joshua and Deuteronomy? And I would argue that it's, it's still all about Israel, that uh, a, a very close exegesis of these texts shows that the Canaanite destruction texts are saying to Israel, whatever you do, don't don't break covenant with God and ignore this Torah because if you do, in effect, you will be Canaanite. In other words, you will be those who are dispossessed of the land. You are, will be those who are exiled. So the Canaanite destruction text, which is set right at the beginning of Israel's story, narratively at the conquest, at the entry into the land, are in fact all about, I think, Israel's exile, the end of Israel's time in the land. It's explaining why Israel was dispossessed from the land, and it's really saying Israel became Canaanite. Building this Canaanite trope, this Canaanite metaphor, as to say Israel ceased to be Israel. That sounds like kind of the beginning of Joshua as well, where you have Rahab, the outsider who's treated as an Israelite, and um, the insider Achan, who is treated as a Canaanite. Right, exactly. So at the same time as the Canaanite destruction texts are intimately tied to Israel's keeping of the Torah or requirement to keep the Torah or failure to keep the Torah, that's one very important exegetical component. The other exegetical component is that there's this constant flipping of identities of Canaanite and Israelite. Those who think that they're Israelite, say, go to Joshua 2, the Israelite spies, uh, become fools and act like Canaanites. Uh, and those who are Canaanites, at least for all appearances, act like Rahab, is an exemplary uh, uh, keeper of the Torah, who has, takes the very words of Moses upon her lips. And so there's this flipping of identity. And what that's doing, I think, uh, throughout Israel's history, it's constantly challenging who is Israel, constantly unsettling that concept of Israelite identity, because Israel was constantly relying on its on its blood relations, its kinship, right? No, where Israel? Because this is my father. Where Israel? Because these are my patriarchs. And no, Joshua is say, saying, and Deuteronomy is saying, you're Israel if you keep the Torah. And if you don't keep the Torah, you're Canaanite and you're going to lose the land. Mm. If we could jump back to the modern world uh, for a moment. Uh, Luke, I'm wondering if you could help outline the nature and scale 
of the the dangers that obtain for welcoming refugees because i think i think this is something that often comes up in people's minds it's like well if we just allow refugees into our country willy-nilly then um you know i'm not putting my kids in in danger and uh, i i think that sort of protective mentality can really kick in for people could you just paint that picture for us a bit so i'll i'll talk just in terms of um security and economics they're kind of uh, two common arguments you hear that that um, refugees and excessive immigration or what have you threaten our security. Um, mm-hmm. Immigrants may be inclined in some way uh, to violent crime or terrorism, or they might threaten our economic well-being by um, stealing our jobs, straining mm-hmm. our resources. And just to put it simply, these arguments are incredibly weak, a- according to the scholarly literature. Mm-hmm. So to start with, Western states apply incredibly rigorous background checks to all those whom they admit into their territories, such that studies end up finding that the threat of terrorism, for example, is almost non-existent. The crime rates of immigrants tend to be lower than native-born citizens in the US, for example. Within Germany, um, Germany's crime rates have gone down overall since Angela Merkel uh, famously um, opened Germany's borders for a time to one million asylum seekers in 2015. In terms of economics, there was a study um, drafted by the US Department of Health and Human Services, which was suppressed by the Trump administration, but um, was leaked, I think it was in 2016, finding that while, yes, of course, refugees rely on the department's programs, particularly in their first uh, three or four years of um, being resettled into the US, at a higher per person cost than um, the rest of the US population, Nevertheless, once you take into account the taxes uh, and other sources of fiscal revenue that refugees provide, there's a net positive impact of $63 billion Hmm. over the 10 years between 2005 and 2014. And studies of of Western European countries um, draw similar conclusions. In terms of, uh, so the response to that that you often hear is, well, sure, perhaps the the nation benefits economically, Mm -hmm. but I know someone who lost their job to an immigrant or I know Mm -hmm. a a group of uh, people working in a particular field who have had their salaries cut because of increased supply of of labour, et cetera. The evidence, again, suggests that, yes, there are, that that happens, but if labour market, if the labour market implications of immigration are handled well by policymakers, New arrivals can tend to substantially benefit not only the national economy overall, but job opportunities and incomes mm. for native-born individuals. Mm. And I think um, one thing I'd add is I think it's so important that we have a sensible perspective on these things mm. because our Western fears of economic or security loss yeah. due to uh, the welcome of strangers starts to look absurdly selfish when we consider that relatively weak and poor states in developing regions of the world have much larger numbers of people approaching their borders in search of asylum in their territories than than we do in the West. And they welcome these strangers into their communities in much larger numbers and with much greater cost, bearing much greater risk and cost than we do. So yes, the US, Canada, Australia, and others can point to their willingness to admit tens of thousands of refugees perhaps each year mm. as evidence of their generosity. Mm. And of course, the welcome of every and each and every refugee should be celebrated. But we shouldn't forget that, for example, Turkey currently hosts 
more than three and a half million refugees. Mm, yeah. Colombia hosts almost two million. In Lebanon, one in seven people is a refugee. I don't know if, the, if it's still the case, but a couple of years ago in Lebanon, half of the kids in Lebanese schools were Syrian refugee children. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, this is a problem we outsource and, and pay big, big money to outsource. You pointed to a, a settlement uh, with the EU where they paid Turkey a huge amount of money to just absorb refugees, um, and so they didn't come into the rest of Europe. I guess some people would say, yeah, you know, maybe the crime rates, uh, there's no crime statistics for people coming in, but what about all the illegal um, refugees coming in? Um, what would you say in that case? So the, the study, the research on crime rates tends to be focused on immigrants in general. Yeah. Um, they're confirmed by studies of refugees in, in particular, uh, but they tend to find that um, immigrants, including those who are not citizens, those who are uh, in one way or another undocumented, are less likely to commit crimes and less likely to find themselves in prison than native-born U.S. citizens. All right, I'm going to switch gears and do a speed round with you guys. So uh, quick answers off the cuff. Um, so, Mark, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I, I plugged a word into Google's random word generator, and the word that came up was modulator, and I plugged that word into Amazon Books, and I'd like you to just to give the book a, a one out of five star review, uh, even if you've never read it. It's okay. Um, so the book is is Broadband Optical Modulators, Science, Technology, and Applications. How many stars do you give it? I think it's probably three. Three? And why? Um, well, optical modulators. I mean, it's important, but how important? Mm. Mm. That's good. So, Luke, uh, the the book that um, I can't remember what the book I plugged in was because I remember it didn't have it in the title. So it doesn't matter because the book is the point. So Jen Toronto's uh, I think it's book three in the series, three of three. Uh, it's called Store, Storing Up Trouble. And the series is American Heiresses. So how many stars do you give it? American what? Heiresses, like heir to the whatever. Oh, five. That sounds five. that sounds amazing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I don't. Um, I don't like stereotypes. So I. But I have a couple Australian questions, and I hope this doesn't come across as stereotyping. So, is it true that every Australian child has the option of going to primary school in the pouch of a kangaroo, um, Mark? Um, well, it's a stereotype, Matt, and it's a stereotype that I think even we ourselves believe. And some kids actually get up for their first day of school and start to cry because their school doesn't have kangaroo pouches for transport. They have to catch the bus only some places, only some kids. That's the problem with stereotypes. It breaks kids' heart. Yeah, that is sad. Um, was that you? <laughs> uh, actually, we got to get there by Wallaby. So, oh, did you? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it could break the stereotype, but it yeah. didn't break my heart. Is it true, Luke, that you have Vegemite-flavored ice cream and, and you pour Foster's beer over it as a snack? Is that, tr is that really a thing? Uh, I don't think that's quite a thing. I had mm -hmm. Vegemite for lunch, though. Did I have you? Vegemite for lunch most days. With Foster's? Not so much. Okay. No, just the Vegemite uh, and some Lamingtons. All right. Um, and what? Lamingtons? Lamingtons. What's a that? great uh, cake covered in chocolate and coconut. Okay, fantastic. Mark, is it true that surfing is mandatory for the first two years after high school? Like a service thing instead of going to the military? 
Right. Um, it's uh, it's it probably is important, but it's 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 an activity. That Luke and I uh, we absented ourselves, and we nearly got locked up. Mm. Did you? Yeah, we went to the beach a lot, but we didn't serve. Right. Right. Yeah. Luke, is it true that the average Australian has 10 times the tolerance for snake venom than the average American? That sounds true. Yeah, yeah I can imagine yeah. that's true. Mark, is it true that Finding Nemo was the first major motion, uh, major movie that was filmed entirely in Australia? Right, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, they had to find an ocean somewhere, didn't they? Right. And they had to find talking fish somewhere. And what better place than Australia, which sports the Great Barrier Reef. Right. I've, I've and uh, heard of And many that. other talking fish apart from those that appear on the movie. I think you're right. What was the question? Um, yeah, well, that doesn't matter, really. Um, so, Luke, is it true that 85% of Australians have a criminal record? Wow. I mean, you're a you're some political theorist, and it's his expertise. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to Did cast aspersions on 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 uh, the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. I, 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 yeah, e each individual is, is perhaps likely to have a criminal record, mm -hmm. uh, but I wouldn't want you to go around thinking that um, every yeah. Australian you meet is, is almost yeah. definitely a criminal. Right. Yeah, it's good to get these things cleared up. Mark, uh, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? You've written some good ones, Matt. I don't know. Uh, I'm draw I'll just say, Matt, I'm drawn to the books that read Scripture with the passion with which they were written in the first place. These books made their way into the Jewish canon, the Christian canon, because they captured people's imagination and by the inspiration of the Spirit invited God's people to something deeper, bigger and more exciting. Uh, sometimes it troubles me that the books that we write in biblical studies are mundane academic tasks. They were treasured, they were cherished because they, they, sh they, they displayed, these books in the Bible displayed the tender ways of God and this tender invitation to mirror God's tenderness to the world. I think that we as scholars need to recapture this and I get excited about those books, uh, whether academic or popular, that read the Bible uh, with great care, but read the Bible with the heart of scriptures themselves. Yeah, so what's one that does that? I, I love, I mean, a popular... <laughs> I just thought you just wanted me to talk, actually. <laughs> Speed round. <laughs> that, <laughs> an accessible book. I, I like Walter Boogerman's Prophetic Imagination. Okay, yeah. Um, Luke, most significant work in political theology in the last 50 years. You, you can just talk, Luke. It's okay. <laughs> most significant, I, I guess, Desire of the Nations. I don't know if it's Desire of the Nations. To be honest, I'm never fully convinced I understand um, you know, I was I'm, just gonna say, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that because I, mm. I, I read it and um, I was like, every sentence feels deeply mm. profound, but I'm not mm. quite sure what it's saying. That's right. Um, yeah. Mark, uh, what's one idea in, in biblical studies that you think needs to die? It's <sighs> a great question. Um, the speed round clock is ticking. <laughs> Let me keep thinking. You're coming up. Yeah. Um, Luke, while, while Mark's thinking, um, I'm going to play Is It in the Bible with you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a verse. You have to tell me if it's in the Bible. All right. And I thought I would pick refugee-themed verses. Okay. So 
first option, so it's going to be A or B. A, if any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Okay, that's A. B, if any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and are unable to support themselves among you, let them return to their home country and not be a drain on society. I'm going to go with A. All right. I'll go with A, Matt. Lock it in. Right. Hey, maybe you're the biblical scholar um, of, the, of the brothers. Okay, Mark, let's see how, how you stack up. A or B? A, do not allow foreigners to mistreat you by stealing your jobs. And you shall buy, <laughs> you shall buy Israel-made plowshares and pruning hooks. Yet B is do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Uh, I recognize both phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, both are strangely familiar, but, but B is the one from the Bible, That's for right. sure. Okay, good. Luke, A or B. A, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. B, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, you shall check their ID, for who knows if they're illegal. Mm, mm. I guess A. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing I. You guys are good. All right. Um, back to, uh, over to jazz for a moment here in the speed round. Most significant jazz album in the last hundred years, either of you. I'd like to hear both your opinions on this. You, you can only choose one. You know, you, this is, it's not your favorite. It's the most significant. Love Supreme. Okay. Really? I don't know. Um, for Piano Trio, Sunday at the Village, Vanguard, Bill Evans. Okay. No kind of blue in, in here, huh? I mean, that, that was astonishing. And Bill Evans played on it. Favorite jazz album or musician? Miles Davis, 1964 concert. I, I love Wynton Kelly uh, as, a, uh, as a bebop pianist. Okay. What, what era is Wynton Kelly? 50s and 60s. Yeah, but he always stayed with straight ahead bebop and he could play with all those who were innovating and shifting the sound in imaginative, uh, impressionistic ways. And he would, he's on kind of blue too, Bill Evans and him change seats on the piano. But he just swings in bebop style. So he's just going back to the 50s, back to the 50s. But he's so good. He often plays the best solo uh, on any track. Just so musical, so balanced, swinging so hard. Is that your favorite era in general, is the, the late 50s? That's where, um, that's where the sound of, of modern jazz was defined, in, in that kind of late bebop era. And so somehow, no matter how we play, we have to draw from there, or we're not playing jazz anymore. That's what we learn. Hey, it takes us back to the book. I guess for a lot of people, they're, they're looking at the refugee issue from the perspective of self-interest, like how would this benefit or damage us as a society? And do you think that's a, a, a good question to have in the equation? Or, um, you know, where, where does that sit um, from a Christian standpoint in our thinking about geopolitics? I, I find it a troubling question, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it risks dehumanizing displaced people just as casting them as threats, mm-hmm. dehumanizing them. Perhaps it's, it's, it's not, this, not as bad, perhaps, but it's thinking in instrumental terms about people who are in great and often urgent yeah. need. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it, it, it's an argument that um, can persuade some people that it is um, less troubling or, or it's an additional argument that might persuade people that, yeah, it's, it's not going to be as, as uh, much of a 
uh, burden is the, is the word that's often used if we were to welcome larger numbers of people. Um, but again, I, I tend to think it, it shouldn't be the point. I tend to think that kind of uh, instrumental thinking about it is the kind of thinking that often accompanies engagement with refugees in a way that casts our engagement with them as a mode of charity or generosity mm-hmm. when I think much more accurately and truthfully it's a it's a matter of justice and it's often a, a matter of reparation and, mm-hmm. and even collective repentance as Mark was hinting yeah. earlier. Um, I think that's really important. Um, something that came out a few points in your book and and I remember reading Joshua Berman's study on Mark. I don't know if you know his, his book or Luke, um, but he, he has a book on called created equal and he talked about how care for the vulnerable was was not an act of charity uh, in ancient israel that that's the social network and and i think it's easy to look at that and think okay well that they didn't have a social network back then we have one now so now sort of anything we do is above and beyond the call of duty because through our taxes we we cover the social network but but that leaves out the question of refugees and and i think when you when you think in terms of a biblical ethic around care for the vulnerable, this is not just sort of uh, something that stands outside of the the call of responsibility of a person, uh, but it's actually a basic responsibility that we have. I'm wondering, uh, Mark, uh, if you could talk about uh, whether an ethic of welcome and and uh, openness to refugees in the New Testament extends only to the disciples? Because I've heard the argument regarding Matthew 25, where Jesus says, um, inasmuch as you've done to the, for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, read, you know, your fellow uh, disciples or Christians, uh, you have done unto me. So do you see grounds in the, in, in the Gospels and in that text in particular to think, think otherwise about that text? Yeah, thanks for going to the New Testament on this. I mean, it's there in Paul too, right? Both 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Um, an ethic of love is extended beyond the church there in Galatians 6, especially to the people of God, but beyond the people of God. But in the synoptics, it's significant that Jesus, uh, Jesus' care, Jesus' healing, Jesus' eating, uh, and, and eating, of course, is an act of, of family, of enfolding one another as king in that ancient, as kin in that ancient Mediterranean context. That Jesus' care and kinship was extended not only to those who believed that he was the prophet, the prophet of God, um, but beyond the Jesus group itself. So, for example, you think of Jesus healing the ten lepers in Luke 17. Uh, I think especially as significant for me is the rich young ruler in Mark 10 and parallels. And I love that phrase, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And love is a kinship term. Uh, When you love someone in biblical times, you treat them as kin, you enfold them as kin. Quite remarkable. The rich young ruler couldn't do what Jesus was asking of him, to sell his possessions and give them to the poor and follow, follow Jesus. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. Quite remarkable. And so somehow Jesus is forming, of course, gathering the eschatological Israel in Matthew, Mark, Luke around himself and forming them and discipling them in the kingdom way. And yet Jesus extends healing and love and even gestures of kinship to even to those who 
See him more as someone who has access to divine power than as a prophet or the prophet of God. And I think it's important just to note that before we come to Matthew 25, which is the sheep and the goats parable, um, Jesus says, for I was hungry, you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, and so on. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. You welcome the stranger, you welcome me. And of course, welcome the stranger is comes from Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats parable, and it's the most common tagline used by, rightly, by Christian refugee advocates to express the biblical call to welcome. So we've, we've already said, though, we don't have to come to Matthew 25 to establish uh, a universal ethic of care from Matthew, Mark, Luke. I mean, many people argue that this phrase, uh, the least of these my brothers, sisters, limits, or the least of these who are members of my family, limits the scope of the text to the needy among Jesus' disciples. Some people have argued that this is referring to missionaries, Christian missionaries who are on the move, and that Jesus is requiring his followers to host Christian missionaries. I will say that's a popular view, but I I find it hard to imagine why Jesus would want to say that on the night that he was betrayed as his particular emphasis. There's, I mean, there's good reasons, I think, for thinking that uh, I was a stranger and you welcomed me when you do this for the least of these is referring to humankind in general. In Matthew's gospel, there's a number uh, of references to to neighbor and to care that have a universal dimension, of brother-sister that has a universal dimension. Matthew 5.25, for example, the Beatitudes, everyone who is angry at his brother or sister, uh, Jesus says. And that seems to be not just the Jesus uh, community, but beyond anyone we're angry with. But, I, I, but the point is, from Matthew 25, and again, you don't have to come to Matthew 25 to establish this. You can go to... Uh, all over the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Jesus here again identifies with the needy, describing actions towards the least of these, my brothers and sisters, as an action towards himself. Uh, These are his kin. You don't need this passage to get there, but it's a beautiful expression of Jesus' identity with marginalized people. Richard Hayes is a very noted New Testament scholar, and he says about this passage that, that caring for the poor is somehow equivalent to encountering the presence of God. How has the parable of the Good Samaritan helped you think through interpersonal church-level obligations to the refugee and national or geopolitical-level obligations? So let's start with the latter. Luke, maybe I'll go to you. I think it's a useful parable to think with um, at a geopolitical level because of the various levels through the parable that it isn't simply that wealthy Western states such as those that we live in fail to act like the Good Samaritan in failing to love their neighbours. But in addition to that, we, we can, as we think with the parable, we start to see that actually our wealthy Western states so often act like the priest and the Levite going out of their way, spending billions of dollars to keep refugees at a distance, crossing to the other side of the road, so to speak, detaining them, deterring them, mm. trying to contain them in more developing parts of the world. Yeah, it was shocking in your in your book where you talk about how expensive it is to detain uh, people offshore and just the, the amount of money that we are willing to spend to detain people. There's a family um, currently detained offshore in detention offshore of Australia. And a news article last week, finally people um, got an answer on how much is this costing. I think it was $3 million a year mm. um, just to punish this family and 
and to use them as an example to deter other people from trying to seek safety and home. That's appalling. But in addition to that, I think it's it's worth thinking about how our wealthy Western states even act as the robbers so often, contributing historically and in ongoing ways to the vulnerability and suffering and displacement of so many people. And you think about European imperialism and, and the wars and conquests that accompanied that and the enslavement, er- eradication of peoples, the mass migration of peoples out of Europe into those territories and the, and the mass wealth extraction back to Europe. And then you think about the, the, the incredibly um, unjust, illegal, reckless wars that we've we've fought in recent years and the careless arms trading, the unjust economic uh, rules and regulations globally, environmental destruction, that means that wealthy Western states get to maintain their wealth and their territories and continue to accrue power and comfort in ways that sustain the poverty and the instability and the vulnerability of others that generates the kinds of crises that leads to mass displacement. So, yeah, returning to a point you were talking about before about this question about to what extent should we think about our interests in welcoming the stranger? Mm -hmm. I don't think we're in the position of having any right to think about our interests and and we don't don't have any right to think about it as a discretionary act of generosity or charity. Mm -hmm. It is a matter of justice and reparation for appalling historical and contemporary injustices. Mark, what about you in terms of the interpersonal or church level obligations? How has Good Samaritan been useful in thinking through that? Yeah, thanks. I mean, let me go to the parable in 10 seconds, but to be creative with it, it's interesting. I, I like to think of the joy that the Samaritan had in take, caring for this man, uh, taking him to the inn, uh, paying for his upkeep, and perhaps, you know, in the imagination of the parable, Uh, returning and seeing how he was a year later and visiting him and his family. Imagine the kind of joy that the Samaritan may have enjoyed. And that's my experience here in Vancouver as we enfold newcomers who are seeking a home. As we feast with them, as we eat with them, as we celebrate Christmas together, we celebrate Thanksgiving together, as we celebrate uh, their permanent residence or the successful refugee claim. It's such a joyful way of life. And it's so different to the life of the robbers or to the life of the priest and the Levite. And it's just, it's, I wonder how close we are to the lawyer in, in Luke who challenges Jesus. Jesus says, which of these ones was a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer couldn't even say Samaritan. He said the one who had mercy was the neighbor. He couldn't even bring him, he mumbled, you know, the one who had mercy, oh, the one who had mercy, begrudgingly. He couldn't even say Samaritan. And the point of that is that the parable isn't just demonstrating the tender, welcoming way of Jesus, though it is doing this. It is demonstrating this tender enfolding, tender enfolding of the other. But but the tale's multi-layered, because an outsider, an impure Samaritan, has exemplified the welcoming way of Jesus. And through the figure of the Samaritan, the parable, it not only demonstrates the tenderness of the kingdom of God, but it, it challenges our self-assumed piety, and it challenges the self-assumed piety of all who claim Jesus as our Lord. And the point is of this parable, self-interested tribalism. Self-interest has no place in the kingdom of God. Tribalism has no place in the kingdom of God, no matter how religious, no, no matter how Levite or priestly you might appear. This is a parable for our time. It's a parable for the 80% of white evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump, even though he is so 
so clearly shown a, a xenophobia uh, toward those uh, who weren't American or even who those who weren't white American. It's a challenge to our time. It's a challenge to the church. And we have to ask ourselves, as we encounter the Good Samaritan parable in Luke, are we the lawyer? Are we the lawyer who can't mumble the word Samaritan? Because in, in today, it's, it's the Arabic and Islamic Jordanians and, and people from the country of Lebanon who are showing the welcome of Jesus. I mean, Lucas already cited how, at least at the time when we last looked at it, as many, even more Syrian children were in uh, schools in Lebanon than Lebanese children. Uh, the, the, uh, the amount of resources and, and, and the heart and the genuine welcome into their very households that Jordanians have, have embraced Syrian families with. Where, uh, what does it mean to be recaptured by the heart of Christ for the church in America, Canada, and Australia? What does it mean to be broken by the tenderness of Christ? And what does it mean to allow the cross to show us our own vulnerability and our own invitation to vulnerability? So let's say someone's listening and they are with you and cheering and say, yes, we need to do that. What um, kinds of actions would you suggest people could take? Um, Luke, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this uh, because... Uh, and specifically, what can be done beyond um, maybe even looking after those who are already here, but to, to sort of ch shift the conversation or to take action at a, at a larger political level as well? Yeah, we give, we give a few examples in the book of individuals that we know and organizations that we know that have engaged, um, as you say, in... in um, caring for, welcoming, loving refugees who have arrived in, in various countries, but also in activism and advocacy and yeah. civil disobedience, um, which at various points has had, in, in Australia where some of my focus has been, has had real impact, um, even if not in changing government policy entirely, but in making a real difference for individual displaced peoples who are, as we were saying before, being punished in offshore detention um, for having the nerve to seek safety at home. Um, there's, a, there's a rich history, uh, as I'm sure um, plenty of people know, of, of individual Christians and, and individual Christian politicians and church communities um, and domestic and transnational faith-based advocacy movements making extraordinary differences globally. Um, in pushing for the abolition of slavery, the abolition of, abolition of the slave trade, um, restraint on uses of various um, horrific weapons in war. Um, and, and so I think the, the church has this profound opportunity, not just at the um, local level or even the, the, the national level, but even at the global level to faithfully and creatively seek uh, renewed engagement with the plight of the displaced um, and encourage their governments and regional and global organizations to think in those terms too. It's easy to look at the refugee crisis with over you know, 80 million people uh, displaced around the world and, and just despair. And to me, it's analogous to the climate crisis where, you know, you look at this massive problem and it, and it just seems beyond hope and maybe little things are done here and there, but what, what words of hope, an opportunity would you give uh, to our listeners to help avoid that despair and and 
paralysis that can sometimes come when facing an issue of this magnitude. As I was saying, there's this enormous opportunity for creative witness and advocacy and moral leadership that kind of returning to this sense of uh, this theme of joy that Mark was talking about that can cultivate um, compassion and cultivate joy Hmm. in the opportunity that we have to take on risks and costs for the sake of those in need. I often look to the example of um, at the national and global level, looking at the example of German Chancellor Angela Merkel in 2015 Hmm. at the high point of the movement of asylum seekers from the Syrian civil war and elsewhere into Europe where um, in the second half of 2015, Merkel just opened Germany's borders to one million asylum seekers. And this risky, costly compassion generated a whole range of positive emotions within Germany. It's a a complex, imperfect example, but there's so many um, particular stories that came out of that, of of this joy of German people of having chosen to care for strangers rather than as we tend to do in the West, seek security from strangers. And, and the, the feeling of connection and purpose at the national level in, in doing this in community with each other and the sense of pride, as Merkel quite explicitly said, the pride of a nation making amends for past injustices. Hmm. I, I think, yes, this... this and, and we in the book we touch on research that shows that compassion at the individual level and even the collective level is good for our happiness and good for our health. And I think at the moment we are sick with fear as nations. Hmm. And um, that's a good way of putting it. And we, yeah, as we exclude and in doing so harm vulnerable strangers. And we're, 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 I think deep down we're aware of the horror that we're doing and, and this is making us unhealthy in this impossible pursuit of absolute security. And I think there's a great opportunity to point out a better, healthier, happier way. Yeah, you mentioned the despair that we can feel. And I, I do think as a church, we shouldn't move past that too quick. Um, but, but not just despair and cheap Facebook posts, but to really, literally as worshipping communities, to lament in the presence of Jesus Uh, those things that Jesus laments. I do think that as churches in the West, we have to learn to grieve what Christ grieves. We grieve at funerals, but beyond that, we rarely grieve liturgically. And so how can Christian leaders and Christian advocates uh, lead our people into liturgies of lament and prayers of lament and songs of lament? Uh, Portersgate is one organization who've been really good at producing songs of lament. Tom Wiest is, a, is my favorite bard who produces songs of lament. I think we, we don't need to despair. That's quite different from lament, I think. But we need to bring a lament before Jesus because this is something that Jesus grieves. And the point of lament is that you can't get newness until you, until you lament. That lament is the beginning of newness. The lament opens up the possibility of imagination because we've in with Jesus by our side faced up to evil and we've named evil and we've cried over evil. And then uh, I think that the next thing we can do, whether we're in, in the US or Australia or Canada, is to think imaginatively at a local level. I think that's the next step. As Luke said, we need to move to advocacy too. But how can we be engaged in welcoming newcomers? My own church, uh, Granby Church in East Vancouver in Canada, uh, 20 years ago planted Kinbrace. And we tell the story of Kinbrace in our book, which, was, which is uh, 
housing and support for newcomers to Canada. Uh, we sometimes meet uh, our newcomers at the front door, sometimes at YVR, sometimes at a local homeless shelter in the city. They make their way to Kinbrace, and this is a place where they find family. Uh, Kinbrace, of course, a combination of kinship and embrace. And here we feast, and here we, we feast not just... Uh, as adults, but with our kids too. Our kids hang out with their kids and we become family together and we do life together and we, and we realize our shared humanity together. We cry together and we celebrate together. And I think that these local initiatives, I mean, sticking with Kinbrace for a moment, can be places from which we can advocate. And Kinbrace has been very, very successful in advocating at a national level and a provincial level uh, for, for people on the move seeking a home in Canada. Yeah, and that was a fascinating story in the book of, of uh, just hearing about what Kimbrace has done locally and then how some of the initiatives started there about the sort of welcome tour, I think it's, I forget what it's called exactly, is, is, uh, has gone national as well and had an impact in, in preparing uh, people coming as refugees for uh, court proceedings and so on in ways that otherwise they don't have that uh, advocacy or orientation. So, well, Mark and and Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript uh, about your book, uh, Refuge Reimagined. And uh, there's so much more in there, lots of stories, lots of uh, statistics, deep biblical analysis, um, careful political reflection on the contemporary situation. So uh, I just thought it was a fantastic book and I encourage people to go out and buy a copy. So thank you. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been great to spend time with you. Likewise. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.